All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's Word together this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance on our time of study. Our Father, You have revealed Your Word to us. We dare not take this lightly. Again and again throughout the Scriptures, we are reminded that this is Your Word. It is not the Word of man. It is not the opinion of the prophets or the apostles that you breathe this out through them through the inspiration process guided and directed by God the Holy Spirit. Father, your word to us has eternal value. Your word will never be destroyed. And for eternity, we will learn of you through studying your word as well as much more. Now, Father, as we continue our study, especially of this last week of our Lord Jesus Christ in his mortal body before the crucifixion, we pray that you will help us to understand these things, that God the Holy Spirit will make clear to each of us how we should apply these things in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning. Let's start at Psalm hundred. And 18. We wrapped this up for the most part last week. I didn't quite get to the last couple of verses, but I want to cover that briefly in way of review before we uh, lock ourselves into what's going on in Matthew chapter 21. There's a lot going on here. This is Matthew 21, 1 through 9, is the description of Jesus, what is sometimes called his triumphal entry. This is not a triumphal entry. This is not the entry of a king who has conquered. This is the peaceful entry of a king who is presenting himself for acceptance to his people. When he does this, there is a response from the crowd that is with him and that is greeting him as he comes into Jerusalem. And that crowd quotes from Psalm 118, Uh, verse 26. In Psalm 118, verse 26, we see historically, and this is what we looked at in the last uh, three lessons, we looked at this is a psalm, a praise psalm, a descriptive praise psalm, written by the leader of uh, of, of Israel at the time, maybe a king, maybe a priest, who is bringing them in triumphal procession to the temple in order to praise God for the fact that the temple has been built, they have been restored from captivity, and God is going to use them uh, like the, the stone that has been rejected. They are now going to be the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner, as it states literally, 
that will be the centerpiece for his plan for the salvific redemption of the world, but also the ultimate redemption which comes when the Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom. So the psalm itself is definitely has a messianic overtone and a messianic application, even though it is directed towards a historical event. And as uh, I pointed out last time, when we looked at verse 24, a verse that is often uh, misquoted, taken and yanked out of context, and used to relate to any nice day that people are excited about, that's not what this is talking about. And, and in fact, when I read to you from Luke 19, as Jesus there at the end stops, as he comes off of the top of the Mount of Olives, now he's, the text says in Luke 19 that he is, it's before he begins the descent from the Mount of Olives. Okay, so he's up there, and that's where the people begin to uh, spread the uh, palm branches and, and begin to uh, sing from Psalm 118 before he makes the descent. And then he comes down, and part of the way down he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. That's, that's the flow of events. He weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, because in this day of your revelation... See, what is being connected here by, in these dots is that, that in the historical context of Psalm 118, when they say this is the day the Lord has made, they're talking about God reestablishing the nation to fulfill his redemptive plan. They're not talking about it's a beautiful, wonderful day in the neighborhood. So let's all sing, you know, this is the day the Lord has made. We trivialize too much in our uh, evangelical churches today because we don't take the time to truly study the word. When Jesus makes this statement in this day of your revelation, he's saying this is, he's making an application from Psalm 118 as he's presenting himself as the king. And he presented himself, offered the kingdom earlier, that got rejected, the offer is being withdrawn, but he is coming as their king. And the ultimate fulfillment of this uh, prophetic type, this pattern, comes when the Lord returns in the day of the Lord at the end of the uh, tribulation period when he establishes his kingdom. This, this concept of this day is a profound concept related to the uh, salvation plan of God. So uh, <clears throat> Psalm 118 then, the response from the people is that they're singing this because they understand what's going on. They understand that the Messiah has come. He's the king. They recognize it. They call him the son of David uh, and that uh, he is the one who's coming in the name name of the Lord. When they say, uh, save now, Psalm 118.25, it's the Hebrew word hoshiana, which means to save or deliver. They, they, they've been redeemed. In Psalm 118.25, uh, they have been delivered from the, con- from the exile and the conquest of the Babylonians. They're not going to be, uh, be 
they're not going to disappear on the ash heap of history like the Philistines and the people of Tyre and Sidon and so many others that were uh, defeated by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And God has delivered them in time, but they're calling upon him to carry it through to the end to to soteriologically save them and establish establish the kingdom. So this has great significance when the crowds are singing this as Jesus is coming in. I closed last time with this comparison between Matthew one eighteen and twenty one. Matthew twenty one. First of all, the nation at the time of Psalm one hundred eighteen, that nation has been partially restored from divine discipline. So they are rejoicing in their restoration. In Matthew 21, the nation, because of their rejection of the king, is on the edge of another divine discipline that will come in A.D. 70. In Psalm 118, the solution to their judgment is that God has restored them, they have rebuilt the temple that's known as the second temple, and they are uh, looking to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And there, historically, that's related to uh, to the people following their leader into the temple to praise God. The solution in Matthew 21 is to welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord, who is a representative of God's character. Name in Scripture means more than just its tag or uh, nomenclature. It relates to the character or the attributes of the thing, the person. So it's saying the one who comes and, and represents the character of the Lord, and that, of course, is the Messiah who is fully divine himself. Fifth point of comparison in Psalm 118 God alone delivered the nation from the plans of the nations it is God alone that they trust they are to take refuge only in him and not trust in princes not trust in politics not trust in uh, human methodologies sixth when the coming one comes in the psalm He comes to deliver the nation that anticipates it. We see that also in Psalm 2 and in Revelation 19. But in Matthew 22, that solution is rejected by the religious leaders, and the promise of future recovery uh, is going to be indicated by the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of Matthew 23, that he will return when they say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So the application we saw is that the solution for every believer is to trust in God rather than human, the human solution, which is based in government, politics, human methods, education, social justice, uh, whatever is popular in whatever generation. It's always based on human works and human effort. Okay, I got this in here twice, so I'm going to skip this slide. Now... The end of Psalm 118.27 states, God is the Lord. It is a praise to God. He returns back to praising Yahweh for what he has done. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. He has illuminated us. And then we have this statement that in response to what God has given in terms of illumination, we need to praise him with a thanksgiving offering. We're to bind the sacrifice 
uh, with cords to the horns of the altar. Now, it's interesting in the description of sacrifices in Leviticus, it never mentions tying the sacrifice down. It makes sense when you look at how large these animals were. And when you see the, the, the altars that we find archaeologically and the description, they have these horns that will come out this far, an altar about the size of this pulpit. The horns will come out about this far, and that was part of their function was to tie down the sacrifice. As I've stated earlier, when this was sung at the end of the Seder meal that the Lord observed with his disciples, they are singing about what is about to transpire. He, as the sacrifice, is going to be bound to the altar as he is nailed to the cross on Golgotha. And then we have the closing praise in Psalm 118, uh, 28 and 29. You are my God, I will praise you, a statement of praise. You are my God, I will exalt you. This builds to the uh, repetition of the initial exhortation to the congregation. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The whole psalm is about the goodness of God in restoring the nation to its place in God's plan and concluding for his mercy that is his faithful loyal love to his to his covenant endures forever. Now with that background, let's look at what is taking place in Matthew chapter 21. Now to give us a little background, I want to remind you that Jesus started to come up from uh, the Jordan He stopped in Jericho where he healed two blind men. We saw that at the end of Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew 20, 29, we're given a description that as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. So he has quite an entourage. An enormous group of people are following him. Now, this transpires... uh, We're not sure. There's a lot of debate. Traditionally, it's called Palm Sunday. Now, if it's, if it occurred on Sunday, then the crucifixion would have to occur on Thursday. I'm inclined to that view. If you're going to go with the traditional view that the crucifixion occurred on Friday, then this occur, had to occur on Monday. The reason is this begins, would have begun in the morning, and they are going to uh, make their ascent to Jerusalem. Now, the picture before you is an aerial photograph. The uh, settlement, the town in the foreground, uh, to a little bit to the left of center, is Jericho. That's New Jericho, Old Jericho, and the uh, uh, ruins there are a little bit off to the right of the uh, just the right edge of the photograph. Uh, or excuse me, kind of south of dead center. I see the tail there. It's kind of a little white circle. That's the old city. So we talked about that when we covered the passage. Jesus would have gone from one to the other, and there were actually two areas of the New Jerusalem. There was the uh, the, the sort of the suburbs, and then there was the new city that Herod was building because he had a palace there. But the road, if you see this, this is a highway here going uh, up, and it makes this ascent. This is called the ascent of Adumim, and it goes up this way and rises through these uh, hills and uh, up towards this ridge in the distance. And this high ridge line in the distance is the Mount of Olives. 
So this is the path that Jesus is taking. He's starting off at about, Jericho's at about 950 feet uh, below sea level, and the height of the Mount of Olives is about 3,000 feet. So this is quite a, a, a climb of about 4,000 feet, and it covers about uh, about 10 to 12 miles, something like that. It's, it's really not that far. And um, so that's the distance. So I want you to kind of get an idea of what is going on here. This multitude is following them. They've got a good trek. Uh, they're head, headed up, and they're going to, uh, and as, as uh, Luke comments, they go up to Jerusalem. And the reason you always read going down to Jericho or up to Jerusalem is because it's not going north or south. We use uh, up and down. Up is North is always up. South is always down. But in Israel, up and down relate to elevation. So you always go up to Jerusalem. And, of course, here you're really going up to Jerusalem. Uh, then in verse 1, we read, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He is coming between, he, we'll look at the geography here in just a minute, but he is, this is a picture that is from the east side of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem is on the other side of the ridge. This is the right, the, the steeple there is the Russian Orthodox Church of the Ascension. Now I'm pointing that out because I've got a couple of pictures that are taken from the top of that tower looking back towards where we would be standing on this picture. I have a number of pictures that I'm going to show you this morning that are black and whites. And these were all taken in the early part of the 20th century, and they are part of a collection from the called the American Colony Collection. The American Colony was established by Horatio Spafford and his wife, Anna Spafford, who wrote the, the um, hymn, uh, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way. Uh, after the death, he wrote it after the death of their daughters. So... Uh, in, a, in a shipwreck. You all know, know the story. So uh, this is quite an interesting collection, but today this is all covered with an Arab village. I mean, everything is, and you don't get a sense of what it must have been like uh, at the time of Jesus. So these older photographs from the early 20th century show what a small village uh, uh, Beth Page was. But it's still not very accurate because Beth Fage, which is the uh, Hebrew pronunciation, means the house of figs. I'm wondering if our word fig is somehow etymologically related to fage. But anyway, um, it's the house of figs. And so this was an area that was uh, fairly well irrigated because they could grow fig trees, and fig trees call for a lot of water. And there were the, the hillside here was covered with fig trees. And uh, this will play into the passage uh, a little later on in verses 19 through, through 21. But under the Ottoman Empire, uh, there was further judgment on Israel because the Ottomans uh, had an, an egregious tax for every tree that you had on your property. So the way to reduce your property taxes was to cut down all the trees. And so they deforested all of the area 
that was in Syria, uh, Philistia at that time, which was a region, an administrative region of the Ottoman Empire. That's why when you go to so many places in Israel today, they're reforesting, they're planting trees. You've seen commercials on TV since the 60s. You know, send money to Israel and plant a tree. And that's because they've been rebuilding the, the forests that were there. So this was a, look, this is the bare ground, and it would have all been covered with, with fig trees. Now, this is another aerial. See, this is modern modern Jerusalem today. And so you see why I wanted the, the, that contrast. This is the Dome of the Rock. This is Beth Page here. The uh, Russian Orthodox Church of the Ascension is located right here, which we saw in the other photograph. And this is Bethany, where Lazarus and his sisters lived. This road coming up is the old Jericho Road. So Jesus and his followers would have come up this road, and what makes this left turn here and then comes back this way, they would have departed and gone through Bethany and then taken the road towards Beth Page. This is another aerial. This photograph was taken by a British military expedition in 1917 that was taking aerial photographs uh, over over Israel. And we see the same layout. Here's the Temple Mount. Here's the Mount of Olives. Uh, here's that left turn in that road that I pointed out a minute ago. Here's Bethany. They would have gone to Beth Page and then gone over and descended the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. Again, it would have looked something like this. For those of you who've been to Israel, uh, the cemetery that is there on the Mount of Olives is located along here, and the uh, overlook where we go is located somewhere right in about where I placed the arrow here, and as we drive up, we would have gone somewhere near this road and not too far from Beth Page, maybe a few blocks or a quarter of a mile from where that was was located. Here's another map showing showing the route that that Jesus has taken. And then here are some early 20th century pictures of what Beth Page looked like uh, at that at that time. We've already seen that picture. Um, here's looking back at it from the uh, Russian uh, from the tower at the Russian Church of the Ascension. So Beth Page would have been located just on the other side of this rise, and then Bethany was located uh, right over here. Here's it. Ident- oh, here's Bethany here, Beth Page here. So that gives you a little bit of the perspective. Now Matthew twenty-one two, we get the instruction of what Jesus tells the the disciples. He says to them, two of them. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So he directs the two to go into the village, says that you're going to find an unbroken colt standing with its mother, untie them, and then bring them to me. He told them exactly where the colt would be found, and uh, he's to bring the colt, but if you've ever been around animals, you start taking the colt away from its mother, what's the mother going to do? It's going to follow right along with the colt. So both go uh, go along. And then he tells them what to say if anyone questions what they're doing. And in verse 3, he says, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. In other words, 
the the people who own whoever owns the uh, the two animals is probably a believer, and as soon as he says the Lord has need of them, they immediately acquiesce and say, "Well, uh, take take them, uh, take them, and go." So they do that, and then um, they take them to the Lord. Now, at this point, we're introduced to another prophecy. Now, I talked about the Psalm 118:25 quotation later that will come up in a few minutes. But we have to do another background check here on this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Actually, this passage involves three prophecies. The prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy from Psalm 118, and then an unmentioned prophecy. Uh, It's not mentioned in the text, but it is the fulfillment of a prophecy, which we will see before we're done this morning. In verses 4 and 5 we read, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this is a quotation that comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and we need to take just a, a little bit of time to talk about what is said in Zechariah 9.9. If you're interested, hold your place here and turn to Zechariah 9.9. If not, you can just follow along with me as I talk about this. Zechariah 9.9 and 10 is the uh, prophecy in question. Verse 9 we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, as we look at Zechariah 9.10, it's pretty obvious this is talking about final conquest because it's talking about cutting off the chariot from Ephraim, uh, that is, those who are invading Ephraim. Ephraim is uh, one of the sons of, uh, of jo- jo- uh, Joseph and is often used as a term for, for Israel. And the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow, shall be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. This is what happens when the Messiah comes and defeats the kings of the earth. That's in Psalm 2. Establishes his uh, rule with a rod and establishes his dominion. This is obviously a second coming verse. But Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9 as being fulfilled at the first advent. Now this is not uncommon in the new uh, in the in the New Testament or excuse me in the Old Testament we often find passages or prophecies related to the Messiah that are fulfilled at the first coming we find some that are fulfilled only at the second coming but there are a few where there's a split fulfillment now what do I mean by a split fulfillment the first part of the verse or the first part of the prophecy is fulfilled at the first coming And the second part is fulfilled at the second coming. We have a well-known example of this in uh, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. In 
Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ stands up to read from the daily reading the parashah of the Torah in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he picks up the, the uh, scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61.1 and only halfway through verse 2, and then he stops. That's because those first that first verse and a half is fulfilled in the first advent. But the rest of verse 2, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, that is fulfilled at the second coming. And so Jesus doesn't read all of verse 2. He only read part of verse 2. So that that is another example of where a prophecy is split, part, the first part fulfilled, first coming, second part fulfilled, second coming. Now when we compare Zechariah 9.9 9 with Matthew 21.5, we notice that there are uh, there are some differences and some similarities. Uh, Matthew is primarily quoting from the Septuagint version, which accounts for a little bit of the difference. But what we have is the phrase, Shout, O daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, which I should have underlined. That is repeated in Matthew 21.5, Tell the daughter of, uh, of Zion, Behold, your king is coming. Or rather, O... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. It's sort of conflated into one statement here in the Septuagint. That's um, quoted in Matthew 21. Behold, your king is coming to you, but he skips over the next line. He is just in having salvation. Why would he skip that? Because he knows he's going to be rejected. The salvation in the context is deliverance from the enemies of, of, of Israel and the establishment of his rule. That's not going to happen as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. That is not going to be that part is not relevant. What's important is the king is presenting himself. He's lowly, he's humble, uh, riding on a donkey, a colt, uh, the foal of a donkey. So when we look at how Zechariah nine nine is set up, I'm going to back up the slide to that verse. The context, if you're looking at it, the first eight verses are really fulfilled historically already. The first eight verses are fulfilled by the invasion of a foreign king who comes from the north. This would have been fulfilled by Alexander the Great. In verse 9 and 10, as Zechariah shifts ahead, he's pointing out that ultimately Israel is going to be uh, delivered by her own king, and you have these two verses, one related to the first coming, one related to the second coming, because in the Old Testament, they didn't understand that there would be these two comings. They had prophecies related to a suffering Messiah, and they had prophecies related to a ruling Messiah. In the Judaism of the late Second Temple period, they tended to ignore the suffering Messiah passages and emphasize only the the glory passages. And the problem was they thought they could have the crown before the cross. But the reality is the cross had to come first so that the crown could be established. Now, there were some different rabbinic interpretations uh, that was set forth uh, by the first uh, first century. Rabbi Hillel, who is a very famous rabbi, I've mentioned him before, said that, uh, in, as re- recorded in the Talmud, as having said, uh, Israel can expect no Messiah. See, this was one view. There's not going to be a Messiah because they're so unrighteous. 
Uh, Israel can expect no Messiah because they consumed him in the days of Hezekiah. Uh, the retort, when did Hezekiah live? Was it not in the days of the first temple? Yet Zechariah during the time of the second temple prophesied and said, so this is where they see a little bit of a contradiction in the Old Testament. Uh, in Pisgah 53, uh, Talmud says this, this refers to Messiah. He's called Ani, that's a Hebrew word, uh, a, uh, it's usually transcribed A-N-I, which means humble or lowly. Uh, he's called that because he was oppressed all these years in prison, and the sinners of Israel denied him. Uh, for the merits of the Messiah, the Holy One, blessed be he, uh, will protect and redeem you. So they did clearly understand in both of these quotes that Zechariah 9.9 was a messianic passage. But by the time of the second temple period, they had decided there were two messiahs. There was one that would be the son of David, and there was one who's the son of Joseph. So instead of seeing two comings, they saw two messiahs. And this uh, is stated here in the, uh, Sanhedrin 98 uh, from the Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Joseph, the son of uh, Levi, objects that it is written in one place, Behold, one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. That's also uh, in Zechariah. But in another place it is written lowly and riding upon a ha- on an ass. See, they say, okay, one place he comes with the clouds of heaven, another place he's riding upon a donkey. A solution is, if they be righteous, he will come with the clouds of heaven. But if they be not righteous, he shall come lowly riding upon an ass. So those three quotes are simply to show that they understood that there is a, a Messiah, that these passages had a messianic implication, but they don't understand how it's going to be applied. And they come up with diff- different solutions. If you look at, at, at this section of Zechariah, there are a number of different things that are said related to the Messiah. Uh, related to his coming, establishes his kingdom. But one of the prophecies that comes a little later on in Zechariah 13:7, we're told that uh, in the middle part of the verse, uh, strike the shepherd, and this is what was about to happen in Jerusalem, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That is the scattering that takes place that we read about in Luke as a famine came about two or three years after the crucifixion and the church begins to be scattered to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts uh, parts of the earth. So the prophecy in Zechariah is clearly messianic, clearly talking about um, what is happening, and Jesus is fulfilling this, showing that he is the rightful king. Now in verse 7, we're told that when they um, the disciples came, they brought the donkey and the colt, they laid their clothes on them and set him on them, not on the two. He's not trying to ride a colt and a donkey together. Setting on them is setting on the clothes. Uh, although there have been some people who have suggested that Matthew's really confused and he's trying to get Jesus to ride two animals at the same time. Uh, Matthew 21, 8, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then, verse 9, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Psalm 118, 25. Hosanna in the highest. 
Now let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. The fact that they brought palm leaves has caused some people to, usually liberals who don't trust the text, has caused some some to say that this is an event that really occurred at the Feast of Tabernacles where they would spread palm leaves and build little palm uh, uh, huts to live in temporarily. And that occurs in the fall, usually in October. And so some people say that Matthew's taking this event out of context and putting it at the beginning of the Feast of Passover or Pesach. But this is not a very compelling argument at all because this was a standard operating procedure that we find from the time of the return from the exile. It's mentioned in the book of Maccabees of kings who would enter into a city, and it was standard operating procedure to put palm branches down on the road um, and way of honoring the king as he entered into the entered into the town. The fact that Jesus is going to ride this unbroken colt demonstrates that he is in control and he is in authority over his creation. All authority has been given to him. He is, uh, the, as the son of man, he is showing his control over creation, Psalm 8, 4 through 8. Now, it's a little difficult to ride an unbroken donkey. I can attest to this. When I was about 16 years or 17 years old, I was a wrangler up at Camp Nile, and we had this almost a two-year-old uh, uh, colt, a donkey. And uh, it was rodeo time. At Once a week, we would have rodeo for the campers. And so I was going to uh, get on this donkey and, and break the donkey. And that don- as soon as I got on that donkey bareback, that don- and that donkey was, I could almost, my feet almost touched the ground getting on top of that, that colt. Very small. She reared up, and after about three bucks, I went flying straight over her head. And by the grace of God, uh, my head collided head on with a tree. A dead tree that just knocked, immediately knocked down and gave way. Otherwise, I probably would have had a severe concussion. But uh, it, you just don't get on an unbroken colt. They, they react violently to it. And so this demonstrates that Jesus is in control of, um, of, of his creation, and the colt allows him to ride him into the city. Now, as he goes into the city, the people's response is typical of welcoming a king, welcoming in peace, not in conquest. Now, uh, we can go back to the time of David, that kings entered into Jerusalem riding on a, a, a mule, riding on a donkey, uh, in order to uh, demonstrate that they were peaceful and demonstrating the quality of their reign. Uh, riding on a horse is a sign of conquest. So Jesus is not riding on a horse, he's riding on a colt. And this is clearly a fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 passage, which was understood at Messianic at the time. And so he is basically forcing the religious leaders of Jerusalem at this point to make a decision, to either accept him as the king or not. And so, as we'll see in the coming chapter, they immediately uh, seek to do something about it, but they are fearful of the reaction of the crowds, and they say, uh, repeat this verse from Psalm 118 again, they'll say, because they are singing Hosanna, 
uh, to God in the highest, and that that is their reason. They are fearful of the crowds, but they have already determined that they are going to put uh, Jesus to death. So Jesus rides in on the donkey. It's indicating that he's coming in peace, that he is going to have a peaceful administration. There were also some of the judges that rode on on uh, donkeys. So this is clearly a picture of peace and harmony that he is coming in. And uh, what will happen, though, is that his his followers will be he'll be killed. His followers will be scattered. Now, I want to go to Luke 19 at this point. In Luke 19:39, we read, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They, they don't like what the crowds are doing. And this was a huge crowd. As you look at this picture here, this is from a modern uh, Palm Sunday uh, procession reenactment. There's a lot of people there. Now, there were a lot of people at this time in Jerusalem. Uh, according to Charles Ellicott, who quotes from Josephus, Josephus is the ultimate source, but Ellicott makes this statement as well, uh, affirming uh, Josephus, that the number of lambs that were sacrificed in the first century was around 260, 270,000 lambs in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Now, one lamb would be sacrificed for one family, so if you have an average-sized family of 10 people, that would indicate a uh, 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for Passover. That is a huge crowd when the average population of Jerusalem at this time was well under 100,000. So people were already arriving, would be already arriving. They would be camping out all along the, the sides of the Mount of Olives, all up and down the Kidron Valley, all around Jerusalem. The hillsides would have been covered by the tents of the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem for Pesach. So there would have been a, it would have been a huge number of people, uh, to greet the Lord as He came in. Now another thing that people, uh, mention is, well, these people are awfully fickle because you have a number of people who are welcoming Jesus and saying He's the King, and then within four or five days they're going to be shouting for, um, uh, Barabbas rejecting Jesus and calling upon, um, Pilate to crucify Jesus. That's assuming they're the same people. That's a major mistake. Remember, the, the multi, there was a multitude of people who were traveling with Jesus from Jericho up to the Mount of Olives. It is those people who are primarily the ones who are spreading the palm branches and singing and welcoming him into Jerusalem. Many of the others that were there that were camped along the Mount of Olives would have come up and said, uh, well, who is this? That's the response at the end of, uh, at the end of the verse. The multitudes who went before, those who followed crying, and, and then we read in verses 10 and 11, uh, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And it's interesting, it uses the same word multitude there that it's used in uh, at the end of chapter uh, 20, indicating those who are following Jesus. So that is the group that is saying, this is Jesus, the prophet uh, of, from uh, Nazareth of Galilee. But as Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives, we read in verses four, Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. 
saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day. Now, remember, this your day means a special time. It reminds us of this is the day the Lord has made in Psalm 118. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes because of their negative volition, they have rejected his messianic claims. He says, for days, and then he warns them of what will happen in terms of future judgment. For days, uh, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So he is clearly making the claim that he is the Messiah. The liberals come along and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed this. Yes, he did. That's what he's crucified for, because he claimed to be, uh, claimed to be the Son of God. Now, the third prophecy that's significant for understanding this is a prophecy that's not mentioned in any of the Gospels. But it is the fulfillment of a prophecy that is uh, one of the most remarkable prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, and that's the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. What is the last statement that Jesus makes here in Luke 19.44. He said, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The assumption there is they should know the time of the visitation. They, they, they've been given the information so that they can figure out the chronology. Remember when Jesus was born, there were uh, two individuals who met his parents in the temple when they brought him in to dedicate him. There was Simeon and there was Anna because they understood the time. How would they understand it? Because they understood the prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Now, I'm not going to go through this in detail. We've done it in the past, but I did want to just make a brief reference to it. If you want to look at Daniel 9, 24 with me, you may turn there. It may make a little more sense to you. What we have is a decree that is given that is a, a time frame for Israel. Seventy weeks, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To speaking, The angel is speaking to Daniel, and the angel says it is for your people. This is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Your people are the, uh, are the people of Israel. Your holy city is Jerusalem. And then he lists six things that are going to be fulfilled at that particular time. Then in verse 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, we know that that command was Artaxerxes' decree that's mentioned in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, a decree for Nehemiah to go out and finish building the walls of Jerusalem so that that would complete it. The temple's been built, other things have been built, but the wall, the defensive wall, has not been built and so Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah to go back and complete it. From that point, which we can take to March, or date to March 5th, 444 B.C., and we count forward, the 69 weeks would be 69 times 7, uh, because it's it's really literally says 69 periods of 7. So when you multiply 69 times 7, 
and then you multiply that by 360, which is the number of days in a prophetic year, you come up with 173,880 days. Now, when you add 173,880 days to March 5th, 444 B.C., and you take out for the year zero, because there's no zero, it just went from the way we count from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., then the 173,880th day is March 30th, A.D. 33. This is the date of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This fulfills that time. It is after this that the Messiah will be cut off. Uh, let me see. Just briefly, Daniel 9.24 lays out the entire 490 years. Daniel 9.25 talks about the first 69 weeks, which is 483 years or 173,880 days. Then in verse 26, we see that there's a clear gap after the 62 weeks. So after March 30th, the, that first uh, it, that day when he enters into Jerusalem, after that day, the Messiah will be cut off. That was some five or six days later. And then we're told that uh, something else occurs in that gap between the 69th and 70th year, and the uh, city and the sanctuary will be destroyed, and there will be uh, desolations until the end, and then there will be the last week, which is this uh, 70th year. So the completion of the uh, 69 weeks occurred on March 30th, A.D. 33, according and uh, according to calculation, number of people have worked on this and and worked this out. So the decree is Nehemiah's. I mean, Artaxerxes decreed in Nehemiah March 5th, 444, and it is fulfilled when Messiah enters in and the entry in Luke 19:28 to 40. And if we multiply it out. We come out with, um, I've got to run through this again. Okay, we come out with this conclusion, 173,880 days. Question then is, what happens to the other seven years? If there's 490 years. And that last year is the 70th week, which is yet to be fulfilled sometime in the future, which is the tribulation period. So after the entry, when that the, the clock stops, then the prince is cut off, then there's judgment on the city, then there is an undetermined time, which is the church age, before the uh, Antichrist appears, and then seven years later the Messiah uh, returns. Okay, that gives us the overview. That's one of the great prophecies of Scripture where we can say that, that we know when the Messiah was going to come. It's laid out in Daniel 9. I mean, if you ask a, a rabbi or a Jewish person this, uh, they don't know anything about this. Rabbis uh, say, well, we don't ever study that. We're not supposed to study that. We, uh, you know, they, they, they avoid this. The, the technical passages are, are, are avoided. But this gives a time frame. That's why Jesus could say, this is your time, but you didn't recognize it. 
And the issue for us is to understand that what Jesus did wasn't happenstance. It was planned out by God. The chronology works down to the details. And when he enters into Jerusalem, it is an event that has been predetermined from eternity past, and he is presenting himself as the king. What we'll see in the coming chapters is the opposition to the king as he is tried, because the day that he enters in is on the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan is the day that the Passover lamb for the families in Jerusalem would be selected. They are to select the lamb and then examine and evaluate the lamb to make sure it was without spot or blemish. And then on the 14th, the lamb is sacrificed, and that is eaten at the Passover meal. So Jesus fulfills the chronological typology. He enters, he offers himself on the 10th, and then he will be sacrificed on the 14th. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to be reminded that that your word is true, that there are so many prophecies that relate to the first coming, others that relate to the second coming. But because we know these first coming prophecies were fulfilled literally, we know the other prophecies will also be fulfilled literally. And that there will be a time of judgment, a time of evaluation for every single individual. And those who trust in Christ will have eternal life. They will be taken out of this world at the rapture, and they will be evaluated for their uh, eternal rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Those who have not accepted Christ, they will be judged eternally, the Scripture says. They will be resurrected at the time of the great white throne judgment, where they will be evaluated according to their works, which will be found wanting, and then they will be sentenced and sent to the lake of fire. Father, we pray that anyone listening to this message who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny will take this opportunity to make that sure and certain that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. They're paid in full. The only issue is for you to trust in him and him alone for eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that each of us will be challenged by what we study to a greater uh, focus upon your word, realize even more the importance of our spiritual life, that we have been bought with a price, and therefore we are to live to glorify you. And we pray that you would strengthen and encourage us in our faith. We pray in Christ's name, amen.